guys, welcome to another week of the course. This is the only lecture for week five of the course because you also have, as you should know from the announcement, uh, you also have student speeches to submit and then to listen to and then to vote on for not only bonus points but for the determination of what the uh, next writing assignment will be. So uh, this is a slightly different week in terms of the way the course rhythm has gone, so make sure you take a look at what it is that the expectations are and what's coming up. Uh, <coughs> But um, today, it is the one and only lecture for week five. It is for me, day 46 of the self-quarantine. It is, uh, it's Monday, I'm getting a little ahead of the lectures in the past. I've been a little kind of behind or, or, or rushing to keep this remote instruction on pace with, the, with what the syllabus says. Getting a little ahead now. Um, I also just want to point out that uh, we're moving into a new stage of the course in terms of the content. Um, we've moved out of the kind of democratic theory slash political analysis uh, about what it is that political reform is oriented towards and what are the avenues available to it and the opportunities and obstacles. And now we're looking at essentially like political reform as it happens through the different avenues, getting from the idea of a political reform to getting it done. And we're gonna take uh, a variety of different looks at it, but we're definitely gonna look at each of the avenues and um, in more depth as promised earlier in the course and today we're starting off with amending a constitution which is the most difficult and most foundational uh, form of political reform when you change a constitution you make uh, a you know as permanent of a change to the political system as is available to human society right because constitutions themselves can be further changed they can be replaced there can of course be a political revolution that gets rid of the constitutional system uh, entirely, um, but it is the most foundational form of political reform, and therefore the sort of the it's it's the it's the it's the prize, it's the brass ring. If you're if you have a political reform that you want to make sure is uh, lasting and sort of systemic, the constitutional route is the is the way that you want to go. Now, for certain reforms, there's, there are no other options available because the reform itself is uh, asking for a change in the structure of what the Constitution has already laid out. Or it's looking for um, something that uh, a statutory change wouldn't be able to fully effectuate a transformation of. Uh, now, there are ways to go for constitutional changes that could have been done through the statutory avenue. Um, so, uh, you know, for example, um, the uh, uh, amendment, the U.S. Constitutional Amendment that forbids poll taxes, that probably could have been done by statute through uh, the 15th Amendment's already new grant to Congress of the power to enforce uh, the uh, 15th Amendment. But it seemed more problematic one, because it was maybe going to be uh, susceptible to a court challenge that, co that Congress had overstepped its bounds uh, of 15th uh, Amendment powers. Uh, but also, as a statute, it could have been repealed um, as, uh, or, or amended or transformed. So uh, going for the constitutional amendment was the, essentially the hardest route, but also the one that would, would uh, most safeguard that reform against future, mo uh, future movements of counter-reform. So the Constitution is, the, it is that avenue, hardest, but uh, also most permanent. Now, I'm going to spend most of my time today talking about uh, the amending the Constitution as a conceptual idea um, and so we're kind of uh, dipping back a little bit into democratic theory, and, uh, but then I'll talk specifically about uh, the U.S. Constitution and uh, political reforms that have been achieved through uh, constitutional uh, um, amendments, as well as state constitutions. Um, I have a set of um, examples. It's not comprehensive. I didn't do all 50 states, but I have a set of examples of what it takes to amend different state constitutions. And this particular uh, set of notes, I've made a PDF, and I've linked to... The, uh, I link to the notes in, in D2L. So the stuff you see me reading from today will all be available to you. I'm going to put very little on the board. It may be, possibly, that this is all that goes on the board. We'll see if I can actually keep my hands off the chalk for roughly an hour or so. Uh, starting kind of at the foundational notion of what amending a constitution as an avenue of reform is about is that it's a necessary feature of a democratic system, right? Uh, or at least it's seen by pretty much every constitution writer that the Constitution is the foundational 
set of rules and procedures and institutions and roles for a democratic system, but that there's no reason to think that that should be set in stone. Um, it could be uh, set in stone, but there's no reason why that stone doesn't have extra room and why you wouldn't want to chisel other things onto that stone. Um, or why it should be set in something a little bit more malleable in stone so that you can make uh, erasures. I don't, the, the, I don't need to get too wrapped up in mixed metaphors here uh, this early in the lecture. Anyway. But there are two countervailing forces or considerations that are taken into account when saying, okay, there needs to be a method to revise the Constitution, but how easy should that method be? What should it be? What should the procedures or institutions uh, or uh, role or regulations that are built into the Constitution itself, what should they be? Um, and the two countervailing considerations are responsiveness and stability. There's, both of these are really important values when you're talking about the foundation of a political system. When you establish a democratic political system by writing a constitution, by gathering people together who are representatives of the people who are going to have to live under that constitution, and not only representatives of the people who are going to have to live under it, representatives of the future as well, right? Uh, the people who gather for, for constitutional conventions are... Uh, determining the political system not just for their constituents at the moment, but for their generational constituents. So it's a pretty significant act of representation. Um, the, there are lots of questions of design, right? How do you, how, what kinds of uh, roles and rules and institutions and regulations? But a big one here, and it's, you know, it is uh, often like the last part of a constitution. All the stuff is written and then, okay, here's the amendment process. Uh, Responsiveness is important because as the essentially delegates of a generational constituency, uh, there is a basic understanding that the future is going to look different. And I mean, that's, that is a, that's just a basic understanding uh, in human life. But the future is going to look different. There's a basic understanding that there needs to be room for this system to be a living, breathing organism that responds to the way the future is different. Not every problem that might arise, not every idea, not every social movement, not uh, the uh, um, nature of the dominant political values that exist in the moment are going to endure for all time. And what are those changes going to look like? It's impossible to know. So, you, so the, the founders, the writers of a constitution know that it's important to create, uh, not only create a mechanism, but to make sure that mechanism is responsive to the future, yet... Stability, the countervailing force, is also important because if you make a constitution too easy to change, what you're doing is you're generating the possibility that political expectations, systemic expectations, are going to be disrupted so frequently that <clears throat> the system itself might lack legitimacy, it might be confusing to people, the, uh, out political outcomes could be too open-ended, and there could be too much change. There is an acknowledgement that the people of the present and the future are potentially also going to be fickle and unwise and unreflective, and there needs to be a safeguard, at least at this foundational level, against uh, overly precipitous change so that the entire system can have stability, so that it can be enduring, uh, but also so that people can have a stability of expectations, that they'll know what elections are going to look like five years from now. Um, they may not know what elections are going to look like 25 years from now, but they know that if they do look different 25 years from now, that that change will have had to overcome some kind of pretty major obstacle so that it must be a really important uh, type of change. Um, there's also, just at kind of a levels of analysis, reason to make uh, the uh, fundamental system more stable than uh, sort of the statutory system is that Normal politics, what we might think of as normal politics, the day-to-day -day battle over policy, the making of statutory law, the remaking of statutory law, the, uh, the uh, further regulation through executive branches, uh, the acts of judicial review, these are normal politics. This is the stuff that goes on on a daily basis. It's part of the struggle of political actors seeking to get what they want out of the political system. That a constitutional scheme sets up the arena 
for normal politics. And what you want to do is to make the nature of that arena flexible for the future, but you don't want to make the arena making and the arena remaking as open as normal politics. There's, there's kind of this distinction between normal and extraordinary politics. And amending a constitution belongs to extraordinary politics versus normal politics. Um, if amending a constitution were too easy, if it were basically either identical to or virtually identical to the normal statutory process or the normal regulatory process or even the process of judicial review, um, then uh, it obliterates an important distinction <clears throat> between foundational questions and day-to-day -day questions. Day-to-day -day questions get answered in the um, structure that's set up by the foundation. And the foundation itself is important to be able to change because if, if you don't, then the answering of the day-to-day -day questions may become problematic in terms of times have changed, right? So uh, if, if it's really practically impossible to or impossible to alter a constitution, daily politics will become more and more divorced from the reality of daily life. <coughs> so extraordinary politics is necessary to provide responsiveness and flexibility, uh, but it also should be in some sense immune from the same kinds of transformative forces. There's a good reason in democratic theory to have amending a constitution be harder. Now, that knowing that kind of abstractly, that there, there needs to be a balance between responsiveness and stability, that both of those uh, concerns are legitimate and both of them have to be built in, now the question is, in what proportion? How do you balance them? Uh, how much stability do we want to get uh, and knowing that additional levels of stability are going to result in decreased responsiveness? So there's an automatic trade-off between these two. I said I wasn't going to do the board, but here it is. I'm definitely going to do it. Trade-off, right? And the uh, stability gives us essentially the, the knowledge that extraordinary politics will be infrequent and they will only happen when it, the, the, the times call for something that is extraordinary. Right? That's what extraordinary means. It's extraordinary, above the ordinary. Responsiveness, we want to we actually make it possible for uh, politics to be, extraordinary politics to be accessible to the people. But how accessible? What are the trade-offs? What's the balance going to be? Um, <clears throat> so that's the basic sort of philosophical landscape of the question about how do you set up a mechanism for amending the Constitution. Now, there are a lot of answers to that. But there, there's no right answer, right? Whenever you're talking about trade-offs between two equally valuable, or at least uh, not necessarily equally valuable, but very powerful values or considerations, like both responsiveness and stability, both of which are super important, uh, to a democratic society, uh, the, it, there, there's no right balance. There's no right answer. There's no like, oh, okay, if we just do the math and carry the one, and okay, here's, here's the procedure for amending the Constitution. It, it isn't that way. You're always going to have a lot of different options for the extraordinary politics, for the constitutional amendment process that uh, are legitimate and compelling and reasonable and strike a good balance between these two kinds of things. Uh, the, the question always has to be, what kind of balance do we want? Now, uh, I've put up here the contrast between the U.S. Constitution and state constitutions, and you know, just by having the diagram already done, you're kind of, I'm kind of uh, giving the spoiler. The U.S. Constitution provides an enduring framework, <clears throat> and the state constitutions provide opportunities to have laboratories of democracy. In other words, experimentation, right? Here, at the U.S. constitutional level, the decision was made to make the amendment process extraordinarily difficult. And that process is two-thirds of both houses of Congress plus three-quarters of the states. Theoretically, that could be a higher uh, obstacle, but that's about as high as it gets, right? Theoretically, it could be three-quarters of both houses of Congress, and the president has to sign it, and four-fifths of the states, right, that you can always up these numbers and you can always make it consensus required. There is actually one change that does require consensus, and that is uh, changing equal representation in the Senate. 
No state can be denied equal representation in the Senate without its consent, which means essentially 100% agreement for that. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, so, so it could always be higher, but this is a relatively high bar. And the U.S. Constitution has only been amended 27 times, and really, because the Bill of Rights was one lump, and so I consider 1 through 10 to be one amendment, really only has only been amended 18 times over the course of now 230 uh, plus years, 233 years. <clears throat> and that's, uh, you know, an average of uh, one every 23 years, though the way it's worked out is there have been eras of sporadic uh, constitutional amendment. Um, the, uh, obviously the Bill of Rights, and, but then the founding generation passed uh, the first 12 amendments. So one through 10 was done all in one act, and then the 11th Amendment was in 1793, and the 12th Amendment was in 1803. So this, the, the founding generation, the people who actually wrote the Constitution and created this level of, uh, of uh, stability versus responsiveness, because this is obviously skews towards stability. Um, they, they themselves amended the Constitution three times, so the bar was not so high that uh, they didn't do it. And really, all three of those, though, were kind of fixes. They were, they were things where like, oh yeah, here at the Constitutional Convention, we didn't quite get it right. Um, so it wasn't as though they were responding to changing terrain. They were really just kind of fixing things up that they, that they didn't anticipate uh, would play out the way they played out. Um, but uh, following that, there was the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment that was passed uh, during uh, and immediately after the Civil War, the Reconstruction Amendments, um, which resulted from a very specific political conflict um, and it was really less about responsiveness and more about power. Uh, the reason why the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were added to the U.S. Constitution was because the Union won the Civil War and was able to impose its view uh, of what the Constitution should become, skewing it towards greater level of federal power and skewing it towards uh, fewer uh, states' rights. Still not eliminating states' rights. Um, states' rights weren't obliterated by the Union victory in uh, the Civil War, but definitely giving the federal government more tools and then also putting in uh, specific uh, uh, new requirements that nationalized the system of rights, for example, with the 14th Amendment and expanded voting rights uh, with the 15th Amendment and ended slavery, essentially obliterating one version of a, a states' rights, the most important state rights that the southern states uh, wanted to defend by uh, seceding from the Union was the right to have a slave system. <clears throat> so that all happened at once, and that was in 1865 to 1870, uh, and the previous amendment before that was 1803, which was uh, the 12th Amendment. So there were uh, 50 plus years, or 60 plus years between amendments. Uh, in, in the Constitution. That's because the stability was so, was so strong. There were proposed amendments uh, all along that way. There have always been proposed amendments. There have even been a number of amendments that have reached the two-thirds of uh, both houses of Congress threshold that have not crossed the three-quarters of the state's threshold. So it's not as though there aren't uh, you know, consistent attempts to amend the U.S. Constitution. They're just not very successful. The next round of amendment was the Progressive Era, and this is when we got uh, a series of another three amendments. We got the 16th, 17th, uh, and uh, 18th Amendments. Um, let's see, was it? No, it was, and, and the 19th Amendments. Excuse me, we got four amendments. Uh, I, I definitely, I should know my constitutional amendments really well, and up to this point I pretty much do, but after 19 it gets a little, it gets a little fuzzy for me. Um, they're in the Constitution, they're on the internet, you can, you can look them all up. My point is, is that from 1870, when the 15th Amendment was passed, until uh, 1913, when the 16th Amendment was passed, another 43 years, right? Uh, essentially two generations uh, passed. And this has been relatively typical that one or two generations pass between bouts of amendments. And so the U.S. Constitution, while we have 18 amendments and an average of one every 23 years, which I consider that to be roughly a generation, we, we, we get on average one new amendment per generation. We don't really get a new amendment each generation. We get bursts of them every couple of generations. 
The last time the U.S. Constitution was amended was in 1992, which is at this point, as of this recording, 28 years ago. So we've, we've already exceeded the average. And there doesn't seem to be a strong candidate for a new constitutional amendment passing both of these thresholds. There are things that, are, that have been wanted. There are things that have been uh, proposed and even, even uh, passed through uh, at least one House of Congress, definitely not both. But it just seems like we're a long way away. The clock is ticking and the average is getting higher. And in fact, really the last time the U.S. Constitution was meaningfully amended was in 1971, which is fully a half century ago, two full plus generations ago with uh, the um, lowering of the voting age from 21 to 18, requiring that barring states from having voting ages higher than 18. That was a meaningful change because it was uh, a, uh, an expansion of voting rights. Um, and the 27th Amendment ratified in 1992 was actually not a new amendment. Um, th there's a weird story behind this one in, in, in that, so the 27th Amendment prevents Congress from raising its compensation, from giving itself a pay raise, um, until the next election cycle has happened. They can pass a bill uh, and the President can sign into law giving themselves a pay raise, but that pay raise can't take effect until the next Congress is sworn in. And the idea being that this is a check on the power to set your own pay, right? Most people don't get to set their own pay. Congress gets to set its own pay. Uh, the idea of this amendment is to make sure that the people have the right to weigh in on the people who give themselves a pay raise. So if you vote a pay raise for yourself, um, you then have to, before you get that pay raise, you have to uh, actually go back to the voters and get their approval for you to get that job back. Um, somebody's going to get the job. The pay raise is going to happen, but you may not get the pay raise. Now, this idea, and it's, that's a relatively minor correction to our system. It's a, it's a real political reform. I don't want to denigrate it, but compared to, say, expanding voting rights for uh, young people or expanding voting rights for African Americans or limiting the term of the presidency to two or granting the federal government the right to collect an income tax or, or you know, I'm, I'm just citing a, a variety of kind of random constitutional amendments. The, this is really, it's, it's a tiny little corner that doesn't do a whole lot of good. And Congress is not raising its own pay all the time anyway. Um, this amendment was not a response to runaway pay raises by Congress. Um, usually, uh, constitutional amendments are a, 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 a finally a, long, a response to a long-term running problem. The 27th Amendment is a really weird one because it was part of the original Bill of Rights. Uh, in uh, the first Congress, when sort of the Federalists had made a promise to the Anti-Federalists that if they pushed for ratification of the Constitution, they would add a Bill of Rights to the Constitution, and the first Congress got right down to the business of doing it, and James Madison took in all kinds of suggestions and received 200-plus suggested amendments, which he kind of correlated, collated, and got down to 12 amendments. The Bill of Rights was 12 amendments, and those 12 amendments were all passed by two-thirds of uh, both houses of Congress pretty quickly and sent to the states, and only amendments 3 through 12 were actually ratified by the requisite three-quarters of the states. The first, the original OG First Amendment, which actually capped the number of constituents that could be represented by a member of the House of Representatives at 50,000, was rejected by the states and never became part of the U.S. Constitution. Um, and if it had, the uh, House of Representatives today would be roughly 5,000 people uh, instead of 435 that it is. And, and maybe that would have been good because it would have, it would have grown you know, in a linear fashion, uh, well, in a slightly uh, exponential fashion because that's how the population has grown. But it would have grown steadily over the course of 230 years to that 5,000 level. It wouldn't have just gone, like, if we, if we adopted that today, it would go from 435 and become an order of magnitude larger. But that was rejected. Um, the Second Amendment was also rejected, and the Second Amendment was um, <clears throat> the limitation on Congress giving itself pay raises that later became the 27th Amendment. And the reason it became the 27th Amendment is because a graduate student in Texas, I'm pretty sure it was the University of Texas, uh, was doing research on constitutional history and came across the original Second Amendment, which had passed two-thirds of the Houses of Congress, and the three-quarters of the states hadn't ratified it, but in his research and analysis of sort of constitutional scholars, the original two-thirds grant of this is a legitimate amendment that can go on three-quarters of the states hadn't expired. And there was no expiration built into the Constitution, and constitutional scholars accepted the fact that once an amendment had received two-thirds of both houses of Congress, there was no clock ticking. It didn't last 
until the next election of Congress. It didn't last until uh, any, there was no deadline. And so that Second Amendment and the First Amendment as well were still essentially alive. Uh, and um, he kind of made this, uh, aware, you know, uh, made the world aware of this and then got state, state legislatures to ratify it so that three quarters of the states ratified it. So we got a new amendment in 1992, but that original amendment had been written in 1789 and had been passed by the two-thirds, houses, two-thirds of both houses of Congress um, two centuries earlier. So it really wasn't a new constitutional amendment. And again, it was relatively minor. Now I say all this because one, I think it's kind of a fascinating story. Um, and what has subsequently happened, and not because of this guy's research, but uh, because of the realization that this was a problem, is that when Congress has voted two-thirds uh, um, of both houses for a constitutional amendment, it has put a timeline on that so that if three-quarters of the states don't ratify by that end of that timeline, then the congressional grant expires. Uh, that's what happened to the Equal Rights Amendment, which never did become part of the U.S. Constitution. It was passed by two-thirds of both houses of Congress. Um, not enough state, a bunch of states ratified it right away, but not three-quarters of the states. Uh, there was a big effort to try to get it there. Congress extended the deadline, and the, it, it never, it, it missed the deadline again, and so it expired. There have been efforts since then to reintroduce, uh, or there, it's actually been reintroduced, the Equal Rights Amendment, several times, including most recently, um, but it's not getting anywhere near the two-thirds of, the, of uh, both houses of Congress that would need to go to three-quarters of the states. And it's not clear the three-quarters of the states would ratify it, even if it were passed through, just like it happened in the 70s, that it didn't. Um, that shows, how, like that was partly savvy on the Congress's part, let's, let's put an expiration date on this, but also that shows that there was, uh, you know, there, there's a strong tendency towards stability, the enduring framework. So the last time we had a meaningful revision of the U.S. Constitution was 1971, half a century ago, and counting. Uh, and that's partly because of this, and partly because of something that often arises in uh, political systems, which is... Uh, a set of political traditions that can come to actually have the same level of power as actual institutional features. Uh, so there is a mythology of the Constitution. And there's this mythology, and there has been for a very long time, but it's continued to strengthen around the Founding Fathers and their wisdom and the fact that they got it right, and that we've had this enduring Constitution for over 200 years, and it allowed this nation to become the most powerful nation on Earth. All of that has, like, that mythology has fed into the fact that, like, the Constitution itself is untouchable. So, institutionally, there's a pretty high hurdle to get across to amend the U.S. Constitution. And then when you add to that the mythology that the Constitution is perfect or nearly perfect, uh, and, like, touching it uh, is really kind of potentially dangerous, then it makes the Constitution even more difficult to amend because... It, it makes it harder for two-thirds of uh, members of Congress and three-quarters of the states to actually say, yeah, you know, the Constitution is broken enough that we want to fix it. It's not broken. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. That's one of the, that horrible cliche, uh, and, but that dictum is one of the things that makes political reform in all of its avenues difficult, right? You have to first be able to show that there's a problem that needs addressing, uh, and that the problem is bad enough to risk change, uncertainty of change. Our Constitution, I just really don't see our Constitution being amended in uh, any meaningful way, or even at all, even in a kind of ceremonial way, uh, for, I, it's, it, could, it could take something that I don't see coming. Of course, the world has all kinds of things coming. Who saw the coronavirus pandemic coming? Well, some people saw it coming, but most of us didn't see it coming. Who knows? I don't think this is going to be the kind of disruption, major as it is, to our culture and to our economic system, uh, being disruptive enough that it's going to produce a uh, movement to create a constitutional amendment. It's definitely producing a movement to create uh, new policies and uh, new, uh, you know, new, new statutes are being written, new regulations and new funding, all that stuff is happening. But the, the, that's still also sort of just normal politics in the sense of day-to-day -day responding to things that are going on. It, to get extraordinary politics back into the life of the nation at the, at the U.S. level seems to me kind of unthinkable. Partly that's also because of this distinction. The enduring framework that the U.S. Constitution establishes is a federal system 
whereby all of the states get to write their own constitutions and they get to do so with a different balance between responsiveness and stability. And also, different, the, the states get to have their own day-to-day uh, -day normal politics differently from each other. Different states pursue different policy avenues and have different outcomes, and people around the country get to look at it and see, like, oh, okay, here's what's going on in one place, that we don't want that to happen here. Or, oh, that's, that, was a, that would have seemed like a risky change to us, but you did it, and we watched it, and it wasn't so bad. Uh, I think one of the most recent examples is the legalization of marijuana, which in a lot of states would have seemed risky and problematic, and our kids going to get high a lot, and, it, and is it really going to produce the kind of revenue, and what's going to happen when you disrupt this black market, and is it really a good idea to uh, legitimize the idea of taking a new drug, uh, in addition to alcohol and cigarettes that our culture already validates. Well, once Colorado and Washington did it, uh, it gave the rest of the country an opportunity to look at a, this reform in action. They were laboratories of democracy, and Oregon followed sort of soon afterwards. Uh, I, I, I still think that Oregonians are, are, are pride. Uh, it was a little stung by us not being first across the, uh, the uh, finish line on legalization of marijuana. California and Oregon seem like they should have been the ones. But the Oregon and Washington, excuse me, Colorado and Washington were the laboratories of democracy for that, giving the rest of the country a chance to see uh, what it would look like. Oregon was actually an early laboratory of democracy in an even more foundational way, and we should legitimately be proud of this, and I mentioned this a, a bunch, and that is direct democracy, the initiative, referendum, and recall. That was a pretty radical form of political reform at the time that seemed uncertain, right? What are the risks? What, are, how, what, what is it going to be like if you let the people actually directly vote on policies and recall people that they've voted into office before their term of office expires. Doesn't that seem potentially dangerous and problematic? Um, that's, it's maybe creating a level of instability that is difficult to, that, that's going to that's gonna hurt the political system. Well, you don't have to do it on a national scale. You can do it on a local scale and watch how it plays out and then it can be adopted by other states. Uh, and then possibly eventually, in, not in this case was it, but possibly eventually adopted by the nation as a whole. Direct democracy spread to about half the U.S. states, and so it caught on, but it didn't universalize. Uh, and so it, it indicates that in some states, that balance between responsiveness and stability without direct democracy continues to be seen as a good trade-off. Whereas in the states that have it, it can, it can, the, the, the greater responsiveness at the sake of stability is seen as the better trade-off. And I don't think either one of them is right, necessarily. A state that doesn't have initiative and referendum, there are certain problems that that system presents to popular movements getting policies they want, but also there are certain benefits of uh, immunizing the policy-making process from uh, the process of, of developing ballot measures. So, you know, and... Uh, if I had to choose, I would prefer to live in a state that has direct democracy, and I do. Like, I don't live in Oregon because it has direct democracy, but I'm glad to, to live in a state where this mechanism is, is uh, available. But if I moved to a state that didn't have it, I wouldn't be like, oh, i got to get direct democracy in this state because it's not democracy without it. It's, I see that uh, there's a legitimate benefit to a state that doesn't have direct democracy as well. In terms of stability, right, it, it reduces responsiveness and increases uh, stability increases the difficulty of making new policies so that the way things are now is the way th things are going to be. It, it increases expectations and it creates a motivation to work really hard through the political system as it exists uh, to make any change that you need to make. Um, the, uh, so that Oregon has been, has been a laboratory of democracy in this way. Um, the I had a point that I was going to make about that, and I talked myself out of remembering uh, what it was. Sorry, it'll either come back to me or it wasn't important enough. Um, I want to go through and talk about what it takes to amend state constitutions uh, now in the United States. And this is where I'll be reading from some notes that are available to you. Uh, the, uh, mostly because I want to show you, one, the diversity of ways that you can balance responsiveness and stability. Two, that there are some patterns uh, that emerge. Um, uh, but uh, three, how much the laboratory of democracy concept and how much the enduring framework that the U.S. Is, has created has led to variation. 
Um, one of the things to notice on this list of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So, you know, 20% of the states are represented uh, in this list. And I didn't pick them for any reasons other than, than uh, that they had kind of a decent diversity, though this is, does not represent all the diversity of ways of amending state constitutions. But the first thing you can notice if you, if you zip through, and I put in all of them, when the current constitution was written, Delaware, 1897, Florida, 1968, uh, Georgia, 1982, <clears throat> Iowa, 1857, Michigan, 1961-62, New Jersey, 1947, Minnesota, 1857, Oregon, 1857, and amended significantly in 1902, uh, Pennsylvania, 1873, South Carolina, 1895. So we have constitutions in effect that are as old as 1857, 170, 160 plus years of an enduring state constitution. So some state constitutions have created enduring frameworks. Though, even in those states that have really old constitutions, there have been way more than 27 amendments. So even the oldest of our, uh, of our laboratories of democracy, the ones that have had the state constitution be in effect for the longest, have been more flexible, have struck a different balance than the U.S. Constitution does. And constitutions as recent as 1982, Georgia, right, uh, has uh, um, a uh, constitution, that, and it replaced the previous 1976 constitution. So Georgia, in the span of six years, had two different state constitutions. One of the reasons why that is, is because state constitutions have built into them provisions for constitutional conventions. Now, the U.S. Constitution does as well. There are two mechanisms in Article 5 for amending the U.S. Constitution. One is this method that has been used now 27 times, and the other is the calling of an amendment writing convention that will then adopt uh, things, essentially a, a, a new constitutional convention. And many states have constitutional conventions that, that result not in a total rewriting of the Constitution, as happened in Georgia in 1976 and then in 1982, but in the proposal and adoption of a bunch of amendments. And we'll see as we go through the list uh, that that is a normal mechanism that is built in and used. It's built into the U.S. Constitution too, but I don't even put it up here because it's never been used and it seems really unlikely that it will be used. And one of the reasons why it seems unlikely that it will be used is because once the National Amendment Writing Convention is called, the normal barriers to amending the U.S. Constitution drop away, and the convention itself is going to produce one or more amendments. Um, and so it, it trades off that stability for responsiveness. It, it creates a moment of, of like ultra-responsiveness. Like what do the people who are gathered here, what do they care about? What are the political reforms that are on the table? You could, make, you could write five or ten amendments in uh, that constitutional uh, convention, and that's scary to people. Um, and so it's, and partly the mythology of the, of the U.S. Constitution is that it's fine. Let's just, we don't need, we can maybe tinker with it, but let's just leave it alone. State constitutions don't have that same mythology. Now, the longer they're around, right, the Iowa Constitution, I'm not, I'm from Iowa, I've never, I've, I've been through Iowa, I've, I've done a few things there, but I don't really know anything about the politics. Uh, Iowa has a 150-plus-year-old constitution. Oregon also has a 150-plus-year-old constitution, but we have, there was a significant amendment movement in 1902 when the Oregon system was put in place, when actually amending the U.S., the, excuse me, the Oregon Constitution became easier to do through direct, direct democracy. We'll talk about that in a minute. But while we've had a 150-year constitution, we, Oregonians, this I can speak to because I know the political culture here pretty well, we do not reverence our state constitution the way Americans reverence the U.S. Constitution. And we amend it all the time. And we have an amendment mechanism that's relatively easy. It's, it's among the easiest uh, constitutional amendment processes among all the 50 states that exists. So we have an enduring framework, but it's a very flexible, changing framework. The U.S. Constitution has an enduring framework that's a very inflexible, unchanging, highly mythologized, institutionally uh, protected uh, form of the U.S. Constitution. So one of the great things about our federal system, and there are a variety of them, is that uh, 
And of course, it causes problems too, as we're seeing right now with the difference between state responses and the federal response to the coronavirus uh, pandemic. But one of the benefits of it is that the U.S. Constitution can stay fixed in stone, and yet we as Americans, and at least in different states, have the opportunity to engage in constitutional amendment political reform activity. And since so much of what goes on in politics happens at the state level, and, and I think that's another thing that we're seeing right now uh, in the pandemic response, is that states actually do a whole lot, right? The federal government and national politics takes up almost all of the bandwidth of our attention on politics, and I'm partly responsible for that. I teach American politics. I don't teach state and local. So I'm, built, you know, I'm, I'm reinforcing that, uh, that perception that national politics is everything. But so much of politics is, happens at the, not politics, but policy and government action happens at the state and local level. And there's a lot of diversity in that. And there are the, the, the foundational system, the distinction between uh, normal politics and extraordinary politics is less sharp in many of the states. And what we do get also in the 50 states is we get a diversity. Some states have a level of distinction between normal politics and extraordinary politics that's closer to the US Constitution, and some of them have ones that are closer to the Oregon Constitution. Really, at the two ends of the spectrum in, our, in the United States stands Oregon, probably the easiest, or at least one of the handful of easiest constitutions to amend, and the US Constitution the, the hardest, both institutionally and uh, culturally, to amend. So part of what's allowed the US Constitution to be such an enduring frame and to tilt heavily towards stability and away from responsiveness is that responsiveness is available in other places within our political system. If we had a fully integrated national system like a lot of democracies have, where instead of having shared power and divided responsibilities and kind of this uncomfortable overlap and then not really sure what, when the states get to rule and the federal government gets to rule, if we had an integrated national system, uh, it would probably be more. It would be more problematic to have such a strongly enduring national framework because it wouldn't leave any kind of avenues for easier political reform anywhere else in the system, since it would all be uh, under one integrated uh, national system. We don't have that, and that was part of. That was not intended, right? The delegates to the U.S. Constitutional Convention did not say to themselves, "Oh, this is great." We'll make the U.S. Constitution really hard to change because the state constitution is going to be easy to change and that'll balance responsiveness and stability in a really good way. We essentially get to have both things. Uh, it ended up that way because the members of the Constitutional Convention were all delegates of states and one of their primary goals at, in Philadelphia in 1787 was to preserve the power of states. That was, that was, kind of, that was a shared interest that both connected the delegates but also divided them against each other because they uh, had each of the states had different types of interests. It produced a lot of compromises, but what it definitely produced was a federal system that created two different domains for constitutional amendment. It created two different places in which extraordinary politics could be carried out at the national level, which they immunized from change at a high level, and it's become only more and more immune over the, over the decades and centuries, and states which could vary in the level of immunity that their systems established to political change. Let's go through and just, I just want to list quickly, because it's, it's in the notes and you can read it, uh, <clears throat> the differences between states. In Delaware, two-thirds of all the members elected to each house uh, have to vote on an amendment. Now, that's pretty high in terms of a supermajority, right? Two-thirds is 66.6%, 67%. But it doesn't require any other step. It's a single-step mechanism. So what are the potential mechanisms? Uh, I'm going to, let's see. Uh, right. I won't write it down. I'll just say it. This is, the board is fine. Majority versus supermajority. That's one way to decide on responsiveness versus stability. A majority is highly responsive and gives up stability because majorities change. So if you can amend your state's constitution with a simple majority of either representatives or voters, you've essentially obliterated the distinction between extraordinary politics and normal politics, right? That's at the most extreme end where there's no distinction between these two. And what you've done is you've just created a, a highly responsive system. Now, it doesn't mean it's 
it's going to be zigzagging all over the place because if you still need a simple majority, uh, that still requires generating political coalitions that can make movements towards political reform, but it's the lowest possible barrier there is. Now, Oregon has almost exactly that. To amend our Constitution requires a simple majority of voters in a ballot measure, but that ballot measure has to get a number of signatures that's higher than a normal ballot measure that just changes policy. So there's one speed bump, but we're basically super, we're basically a majoritarian constitutional amendment system. Uh, Delaware has a supermajority, and then once you've decided on supermajority, there are really three kind of standard supermajorities. In theory, a supermajority could be anything. It could be 53%, it could be 57%. But the way it's played out because of, I don't know, the, the, the stupidities of, of the way our minds work, it is you, what's used are uh, simple fractions. Two-thirds is very common, as in Delaware. Three-quarters, which is 60%, is also very common. Uh, excuse me, uh, three-fifths, which is 60%, and then three-quarters, which is 75%, is, are also very common. All three of those are used. Um, there, there's no reason why a state constitution couldn't say 57% or uh, 62%. It just doesn't make a nice, a nice fraction, and so really kind of culturally we avoid those kinds of things. But once you've decided that majority is too responsive and not stable enough, what supermajority? The bigger the supermajority, the more you're trading off uh, losing responsiveness and gaining stability. Um, Florida, which has a constitution that um, came in 1968, uh, was proposed in special sessions of the Florida legislature in 1968 through three joint resolutions, and then the electorate ratified the new constitution via referendum. So Florida actually changed their constitution the year that I was born, so within my lifetime, with what would, you know, is a pretty straightforward, simple three joint resolutions in the legislature which is joint resolutions require majority rule, and then a statewide referendum, which just required majority rule. Basically, the standard kind, a two-tiered kind, but a, the standard kind of uh, way policy could be made. So Florida remade its constitution in 1968, within my lifetime, uh, through normal politics, and the new constitution created five ways of amending the Florida constitution. So there's a, there's a lot of... Uh, essentially uncharacteristic, unfamiliar innovation in the Florida system. Um, <clears throat> way number one, three-fifths vote of the membership of both houses in the Florida legislature. Now, oh, before I, before I go through these lists, the, uh, the two ways of dealing with how do you balance responsiveness and stability, one is majority versus supermajority, and if you go supermajority, what's the level? And then the second one is, are there multiple levels of uh, um, approval required? Uh, and if there's not that single level, uh, and then you either have a majority or supermajority, the U.S. Constitution has a double level, right? In both cases, you need two-thirds of the House of Congress, and then another level, another group approves it. Or it has to be two-thirds of the House of Congress create a national ratify or national amendment convention, and that convention can then make amendments by simple majority. So that's a double layer method. You could presumably have a triple layer method, but the standard way, the, the, the range of options that are used out there, in theory, you could have three levels, four levels, any number of levels, but the standard way out there is either a single mechanism, like Delaware has, two thirds of, the, of both houses of the legislature, or a double mechanism. Florida's new constitution was a double mechanism. The legislature passed three joint resolutions and the electorate ratified it through a referendum. That's a pretty standard uh, double method. Uh, an elected body and then the people. Or in the case of the U.S. Constitution, an elected body and then a, a group of elected bodies, three-quarters of the states. So Florida's five ways are three-fifths vote of the membership of both houses. Supermajority, lower than Delaware. So three-quarters is 60%, two-thirds is 67%. So lower threshold, single mechanism. A constitutional revision committee consisting of 37 members that will meet every 20 years to consider and propose amendments, right? And then those amendments have to go to the people for ratification. Um, taxation and budget commission consisting of 22 members that will meet every 20 years to consider and propose amendments. So Florida builds in two 20-year revision commissions uh, that may or may not result in any kind of uh, amendments, but 
It is a regularized pr uh, process. This is really uncommon in uh, the states. Portland, actually, our city charter has a charter revision commission that has to be done, I think it's every 25 years, and we're coming up on that cycle pretty soon. We'll talk about that later in this class. But um, that's a relatively uncommon that there's a cyclical required uh, commission. Now, it doesn't mean that, that amendments have to be passed, right? That would be a little too much determining the future. It's like, okay, every 20 years you meet and you've got to pass at least one amendment. So there's no requirement that they do it, but by creating these two commissions that come every 20 years in Florida, there is a regular generational opportunity to change the Florida Constitution. Fourth method, Constitutional Convention to consider and propose amendments, which is what the U.S. Constitution has as well. And then the fifth method, a single proposed amendment to appear on the ballot. So the ballot initiative. Now, I don't know, I don't have all the details on this. Uh, I haven't done the full amount of research that I probably should have done for this lecture, but um, I think that the signature requirement is uh, higher, and this can also be done through a referendum instead of through an initiative, uh, so I don't know. But notice that Florida has um, a mixture of methods, and this is actually a pretty good menu. Like Other states use a variety of, of things that come from this menu. Five different methods. So Florida has a relatively recent constitution. I mean, it's 52 years old now, but that in constitutional ages, that's actually kind of adolescent, really. Um, <clears throat> for me, it's, I'm middle-aged, but it's not, this is not a middle-aged constitution. A middle-aged constitution is really more like uh, the Delaware constitution, which was uh, passed in 1897. That's 123 years old. That's middle-aged for a constitution. Um, Florida has a relatively, you know, call it a 20-something constitution in terms of cultural terms. Um, Iowa has uh, two ways the Constitution can be changed. A legislative, legislatively referred constitutional amendments, in other words, uh, referendum only, not initiative. So the legislature writes a constitutional amendment and then sends it on for a referendum. So here we have simple majorities, but a two-tiered method. You could have a two-tiered method that's super majorities, like the U.S. Constitution has. You can have a single method that's a single level that's either supermajority or majority, or you can have a double level that's both simple majorities, or a constitutional convention uh, that can be called. Um, and I don't know what the requirements are for calling that in, in Iowa. Um, Michigan has three ways. A, legislative, a legislatively referred constitutional amendment, which is the same thing that Iowa has, an initiated constitutional amendment, which is the same thing that Oregon has, um, or a constitutional convention. So three different methods. The legislature refers, that's a double method. Uh, the uh, people can initiate one, that's a single method. Or a constitutional convention, which is yet another different double method. Or double layer, I shouldn't say double method, du double layer. Um, New Jersey has a kind of an interesting uh, approach. Um, the current constitution of the state of New Jersey ratified in 1947, um, a potential amendment is submitted through the Senate or General Assembly. Thereafter, if the amendment gathers at least three-fifths of the votes of both the Senate and the General Assembly, it will be submitted to be voted upon by the people of New Jersey. If the amendment gets a majority of votes, uh, it becomes an amendment. So uh, a double method, supermajority in both houses, three-fifths, three a, a smaller supermajority than in Delaware, the same size supermajority as in Florida. Um, but in Florida, if three-fifths of each house do it, it's an amendment, whereas in New Jersey, it then has to go to the people for a majority uh, vote. Um, Oh, that's right. It's, it's Pennsylvania that actually has, I thought it was New Jersey, it's Pennsylvania that has a, a, a kind of an interesting version of it, which is that um, the state constitution may be amended after a majority vote of two consecutive sessions of the General Assembly, followed by an affirmative vote by the electorate. And that's an, that means a referendum. So a simple majority in the Pennsylvania legislature, but two sessions in a row. So two different groups of elected officials. So what happens is, the, a majority passes a constitutional amendment that the members of the Pennsylvania General Assembly then have to go through a re-election campaign. Whoever wins and loses uh, it forms the next assembly, and then that assembly has to vote the same amendment majority rule, and then it goes to the people for a simple majority referendum. Or uh, what it calls emergency amendments that are voted by two-thirds of the General Assembly followed by an affirmative vote of the electorate. So, Either two consecutive simple majorities followed by a simple majority referendum, or a single two-thirds majority in the, in the legislature 
followed by a simple majority in the referendum. So that's an interesting version of the two-tiered uh, methods. All right, you can look at the rest. There's only a few more. Uh, I don't feel the need to actually exhaustively discuss them all because what I think shows up from this small survey, and the other states, you know, none of the states have anything that's radically different than any of these, or I would have put it on the list, but the states have all kinds of varying uh, methods, and just as all the states have different varying types of political systems for, you know, just one distinction, half the states have direct democracy, the other states don't have direct democracy. The laboratories of democracy concept really does uh, apply in actual fact in uh, at the foundational level, at the level of what I've called today extraordinary politics, where the fundamental nature of the system is up for transformation via constitutional amendment. Uh, we have a lot of diversity. What this means, too, is that there are places where it's easier to make political reform than other places. Uh, so the level of immunity of the American political system to foundational political reform political reform that happens at the constitutional level uh, that changes the very nature of, of the system. All forms of political reform change the nature of the system, but a foundational, a constitutional amendment is the most foundational. Uh, is of the, the level of immunity varies quite a bit, which means that the level of opportunity varies quite a bit. Um, in Oregon, we have a relatively low immunity of our current status quo system to change. Now, one of the things that adds a little boost to that immunity uh, is that um, there's the, not only is there a higher signature threshold, but it's not significantly higher. I'm pretty sure that it's 2% of the number of voters in the previous gubernatorial election have to sign it for a regular ballot measure, and 3% have to sign it for a constitutional amendment, which is 50% more signatures. Um, but the bigger, another piece of that immunity is that it has to be a single issue. And single issue ballot measures can't get you very far in the world of political reform. One of the nice things about the referendum mechanism that a lot of states clearly have, or the legislative mechanism the, 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 where you go directly through the state legislature and never have to refer it to the people, is that it allows for a more complex amendment to be passed uh, than a single issue ballot measure. So Oregon's level of immunity is relatively low, but still there is a distinction between normal politics where we set budgets and policies uh, and extraordinary politics where the uh, constitutional uh, system is changed. It's easier to get rid of legalized marijuana in Oregon than it is to uh, change the constitution to say, <clears throat> to say limit the term of office of state senators to three terms, which would be a single issue ballot measure, right? It's easier to get rid of, now it might not be easier in terms of the political wins, right? It, because if marijuana legalization, rolling that back is no, that's not going to get a lot of approval. But in terms of the mechanism, that one, marijuana is in the normal politics arena. Any change to marijuana policy is in the normal politics arena. Any change to our electoral uh, system, any, anything that has to do with the way the political system works, either elections or institutions or procedures, is, uh, is uh, slightly more immunized. There is a greater level of stability. So again, in Oregon, the trade-off is way different. It's at the other end of the spectrum than it is at the U.S. level. And one of the things that uh, that allows the laboratories of democracy concept is really nice because, one, it does it creates a diversity of opportunities to making fundamental changes, and two, it creates chances to learn lessons. Um, oh, that's right. What this is this is what I wanted to uh, why I wanted to talk about Oregon and uh, laboratories of democracy. I knew it came would come back to me, and here it is at the relevant time. Um, one of the benefits of the Laboratories of Democracy concept is that other states and the nation get a chance to see the consequences of some kind of uh, change. Uh, Oregon had uh, prohibition five years before national prohibition. Uh, Oregon uh, uh, passed a statewide prohibition in 1915, and it was 1920 that the whatever amendment, I always forget which amendment it is, uh, 18th Amendment, I think, uh, that um, I always mix up, I think the 19th Amendment was women's rights, women's voting rights, and 18th Amendment was prohibition. They happened in the same year. Oregon had had a temperance prohibition for five years earlier than that, and there was actually, Oregon had had a, uh, one of the most powerful temperance movements in the country starting at the beginning of the Progressive Era in the 1890s. Uh, Oregon passed it. If the nation had waited longer to see what Oregon's experience with prohibition had been like, before uh, passing national prohibition, then 
I believe that we never would have had a natural prohibition because the unintended consequences, the um, rise of organized crime, the creation of a giant population of regular citizens, otherwise regular citizens who were in fact engaged in an outlaw activity, drinking alcohol, um, the uh, backlash against the fundamental, uh, essentially, assault on individual liberty um, that prohibition represented, all would have been seen in all of its aspects if, let's say, Oregon had passed prohibition in 1905, or if the United States had waited to pass the prohibition amendment for another decade, because all of the problems that arose nationally almost certainly would have arisen, at least to some extent, uh, in Oregon. Uh, so this was an example where we were a laboratory of democracy for prohibition, which was, in fact, uh, while it was sort of it, it, it undermined individual liberty, it actually was that it was a, based on a social movement that was intended to have beneficial social consequences, right? And alcoholism, uh, um, domestic abuse, uh, unemployment, loss of productivity, these were all major consequences of a um, nation that had a high level of alcohol consumption. So it was a really, it was a progressive era uh, reform, not a political reform, but a policy reform that moved through the constitutional amendment phase. Because not constitutional amendments aren't just for political reforms, this was actually a social reform. Um, that had a really good purpose and it had a lot of unintended consequences. And if the standard laboratory of democracy sort of process had been followed, instead of Oregon did it and then boom, uh, really by the time Oregon had prohibition, the national prohibition movement was pretty far along and so it was really unstoppable. It wasn't as though there was success in Oregon and then the uh, temperance movement turned its eyes towards the rest of the nation. The temperance movement was already working at a state level and at a national level at the same time. But if there had been patience, if, if three-quarters of the states after the uh, 18th Amendment had been passed by two-thirds of both houses of Congress had said, let's just wait and see. Let's hold on for five, ten more years. Let's wait and see what goes on in Oregon. And if it's good, then we'll follow. And if it's problematic, we won't follow. Um, and I think that actually with marijuana legalization, which is, you know, it's a similar, uh, it's a similar issue, uh, deciding whether you're going to let people, you know, grown adults uh, consume a particular type of substance or not. I think that there's a similar weighting, and we've now reached the point where uh, the early adopters of legalization, Colorado and Washington, and then the second wave of early adopters, uh, Oregon and California, have had enough experience with it, and there's been, uh, you know, the concerns that kids are going to be doing uh, more marijuana, that the revenue's not going to be, that the black market will fight back, that it will lead to greater levels of crime. Those, all those fears have turned out not to be true, and the revenue source and the mechanism for regulating this new market and the economic uh, participation of uh, growers and uh, cannabis stores has all integrated nicely with the normal official economy uh, to the extent that actually in the Oregon stay-at-home order, um, cannabis uh, stores were considered essential along with grocery stores and liquor stores. Uh, so that's about as uh, integrating it into the sort of normal economy as it gets. This, these, this small handful of laboratories of democracy is, gonna, is making it easier for other states that would otherwise be very reluctant to do so because of the, the differences in their political culture and the different place that, that marijuana kind of has in the, in the regional culture of that area to adopt this. Now I've strayed from the issue of political reform because marijuana and prohibition are both social reforms, not uh, political reform, but uh, the mechanisms are similar. And uh, the laboratory of democracy concept is really, it, it makes room, and I, I bring up prohibition, and I'm glad I remembered uh, that example, uh, I bring up prohibition to point out what happens when you actually don't let the dynamics of the laboratory of democracy play out. Uh, I think that it was problematic that the 18th Amendment was added to the U.S. Constitution as part of this, you know, it was packaged in. There were three other amendments. It was the Progressive Era. There was direct election of senators, income tax, and granting women the right to vote, all of which have endured and are really important, uh, all three of which are political reforms um, that change the way the political system functions uh, in really profound ways. Um, but uh, the prohibition was kind of smuggled into that movement. I shouldn't say smuggled because that makes it seem like it was unwanted, but it was, it, it was caught up in that momentum. And the normal dynamics of the laboratories of democracy, where you do something and you wait to see what impact it has, were ignored. And because national prohibition was, 
I won't say catastrophic, but it was highly problematic, uh, particularly in the enduring legacy, even after it was repealed, the organized crime networks that were established during Prohibition didn't just go away, they actually just went other, even more nefarious places. Uh, that the laboratory of democracy concept is a really solid idea in democratic theory, particularly when you have a federal system where you can balance, right? You can, you can make this trade-off in different ways because none of the versions of that trade-off are correct. None is demonstrably better than the other ones. There are really good reasons to favor stability. There are really good reasons to favor responsiveness. There are really good reasons to tilt in one direction versus the other, and there are really good reasons to try to achieve a kind of a, a, a sort of semi, you know, a nice balance between the two so that neither one or the other is stronger than each of them. Um, so that's amending the Constitution. It's way more complex than this, which is the dominant thing we think of. Um, so uh, I just wanted to get that point across, uh, but it still is the most difficult mechanism of political reform. It's just in certain places, it's less more difficult than in other places. If that's not a terribly convoluted phrase to use, it is the one I'm gonna be ending on. Uh, that's this week. Next week and the following week, we're gonna be looking at the, the statutory, the judicial, and the direct democracy routes to political reform and drill down more deeply in them as I did with the amending the Constitution here today. And in those cases, we're gonna look at specific, really specific versions of uh, political reforms that came through those different avenues. All right, until next week, enjoy week five. Uh, make sure that you're paying attention to what's due and that you're paying attention to the fact that the quarter is gonna be over really, really quickly, uh, pro probably even more quickly this time than ever because of the strangeness of the world that we're living in. All right, well, I hope that the strangeness of the world we're living in is treating you well uh, and treating you more well than it is treating you with uh, burdens and difficulties. Uh, and until next time, I will uh, I'll just say goodbye.